Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I talk more about teaching virtue and how it is not very much like any other kind of teaching. We don't really answer your questions, if you happen to have any, but we do look at a specific instance in which Jesus taught rather strangely and how this clarifies more of why teaching virtue is an issue. That is, that growing in virtue is not merely about doing good actions, nor is it about being clearer about the rewards and punishments of good and bad actions, but about having the right evaluative outlook so that you desire the good itself. And many who claim to want to be more virtuous are asking questions and trying to learn within a framework, like the sophists, that undermines one's desire to love the good. This is the difficulty that our two exemplary teachers of virtue, Socrates and Jesus, battled. And it didn't look very good for them. They were both killed by those they were seeking to help. But they both also changed the world. So maybe they were onto something. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. If you enjoy the podcast, follow us, rate us, share us, and so forth. And check out tacticalfaith.com for more info about us, blogs, ways to contact us, as well as opportunities to support or get involved in our ministry. If you'd like to ask me or Joel a question uh, directly or complain or, what, or have suggestions and so on and so forth, you can email us uh, at wondering at tacticalfaith.com or follow us on Twitter at wonderingwisdom. And in both those cases, wondering has an underscore where the A or the O would be. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Last week, we dove into a discussion about can you teach virtue? And we discussed what is virtue and didn't come up with an overly helpful definition. I mean, we, we tried to point at some things, but we we didn't give a nice clear definition that everyone could hear and say, I understand exactly what you mean. Part of that is because we all seem to think that virtue has something to do with living life well, but what does it mean to live life well? Or what does it mean to, for, to be flourishing as a person? These are all big questions that I, I think I have answers to, or at least I kind of know what they are inside of me, but I, I, I can't verbalize them in a way that is going to show you exactly what I have in mind when I, when I say living life well or living a flourishing life or virtue or, or those kinds of things. We ended the podcast with Travis uh, telling us that Socrates offers a possibility that maybe, maybe, maybe there's someone who could teach virtue, but if they could teach virtue, they would look incredibly different from anything we think of in the way of being a statesman or, or I think even being a teacher. Sometimes when we're dealing with Socrates, I feel like I can sympathize with Socrates because you know I've got a seven-year-old who asks lots of questions. And he asks questions that are getting at bigger truths than his mind can comprehend. And sometimes I try and give him a, 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 a glimpse into what he's asking about. And other times I have to say, I didn't have an answer to this till I was 30. And I don't know how to explain it to someone who, who isn't a teenager at least. And so you're going to have to trust I have an answer to this and I'm, and and ask that question again later, or, you know, when you have more life experience or something like that. And so when we're, when we look at Socrates, when we look at even Jesus and how they each taught, they taught us something, someone different because they weren't trying to give the straight answers 
because the people they were talking to is it was like talking to a seven-year-old in, in a sense that they can't explain just with with words alone what they're getting at and so they they try to paint pictures they try to get at um to give glimpses but knowing that they're giving an incomplete picture when they're when they're saying what they're saying and we're going to dig deeper into that as to what that means for virtue we're going to try to um talk about the ways that Jesus and Socrates were different just in their societies but also how they were different as teachers and what we might be able to take away from that uh when it comes to the question of teaching virtue i i could i could say a lot about socrates but i in and even how plato writes and we could refer to a lot of other philosophers and i think we will get to them but i want to start off with a simple situation in which jesus taught something and he did a really bad job of it. Or at least <laughs> if you think the job of the teacher is to answer the question of the student, Jesus failed to do so. And it's one of the most famous stories that Jesus tells. And that's a parable of the Good Samaritan. So, and I'm not going to go through the, the details because you, hopefully you all know the story. But I want you just to, to notice what the person who asked him, the lawyer, asked him. Uh, he said, you know, first he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you know, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live, right? Well, that's, I mean, you could argue that loving God and loving your neighbor is what virtue is. But that still leaves us with, well, what does it mean to love? And perhaps more to the story, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And so Jesus, So the question is, who is my neighbor? And what is he asking? He's asking, who are the kinds of people that I need to love? I mean, Jesus obviously didn't mean your neighbor as in just the person who lives next to you. He obviously had to mean something more than that. So maybe the lawyer's asking, well, uh, is my neighbor the people of Israel? Is it those who, does my, are my neighbors simply those who agree with me in, in certain topics? Um, surely it's not the Romans because they're horrible people. So who is my neighbor? Who do I need to love? And Jesus doesn't answer his question at all. He tells a parable of the Good Samaritan and he doesn't answer the question. How does Jesus end? He says, you know, you got the, the three people who went by and he goes, which of, back to the lawyer after telling the story, which of these three, right, the two guys who went by and then the Samaritan who stopped and helped, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And and this is funny. The lawyer can't get him to sell, get himself to say the Samaritan. He says the one who showed him mercy because Samaritan Samaritans were dogs to the they were subhuman uh, to the Jews at the time. He says the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him you go and do likewise. So the lawyer asked who is my neighbor? Jesus said, Jesus's answer was not who is your neighbor. That's the wrong question. Rather, who can you be a neighbor to? Yeah. You see, Jesus, like the first time, the first time I really paid attention to what was going on in here, I was like, wait, Jesus isn't answering the question. That's not an answer at all. And so what Jesus is saying is your question 
which can have which we could establish as having clear answers. In fact, we do it all the time, right? One of our favorite things to do is to establish our identity and our purpose and our morality and our value by distinguishing ourselves from those people who are bad, right? Those people with a different politics, those people from a different place, maybe those people who look differently than me, but largely those who hold different kinds of views than I do or something, or those people who are revving their engine at two in the morning or whatever. <laughs> but Jesus says, you know, the question you're asking, who is my neighbor? Who, how far should my love go? Jesus says, be the person whose love, well, see, I got to be careful here because now I'm trying to answer the lawyer's question. Jesus is saying your question's bad. It's not a question of who is your neighbor. It's a question of who can you be a neighbor to? And that's a reorientation. Yeah. It, it, in, a, in a way, it's it's saying, what does it look like to perpetually live as a neighbor to to, to whenever you know, to whoever you come in contact with, what is it like for you to be a neighbor to to those you come in contact with? And, and here, but here's another question then to tag on to this because there's a there's it seems like there's a simple way that Jesus could have answered his question, right? He could have said, "Everyone's your neighbor." Why didn't you just say that? So I I my hunch, and this this gets into, um some of my philosophical wheelhouse, but we, we have a tendency of seeing people like us as being more of a person, or at least it's easier for us to identify with people who are more like us. And so if you tell me that everyone is my neighbor, then I'm going to look out for the people who are like me because they're going to be easier to connect with. It's going to be easier for them to for me to know what they need. But if you're telling me to be a person who shows mercy, that changes who I look for. No longer am I looking for the people who look like me, but I'm looking for the people who need mercy, which, which that that's a reorientation because you're no longer looking for similarities, but you're looking for where can I serve? Where can I help? Where, where can I be Jesus in the world? Yeah, that's good. And one of the issues that we have is that we, the, even the idea of loving everyone is corrupted because everyone, well, I mean, this is getting into one of my soapboxes, but everyone is just an idea. There is no everyone. Everyone, because you can't, you can't hold in your mind and you can't hold in your attention all individuals in the world. I mean, you can barely hold in your attention more than just a few, a small number, a handful, you know, maybe five, six, maybe 12. You can hold it, your attention all at one time. After that, they just become faceless entities to which you attribute your ideas of what it means to be human to, which is why when people who love everyone come across anyone, they hate them because they're not living up to their standard of what a human being is. The ideal of everyone is. But that's a little Dostoevsky in there. And, and oddly enough, if you ask someone what their ideal of everyone looks like, it looks a lot like they do. Yeah. Yeah. And only I'm right, by the way. The ideal of everyone really is me. That's a joke. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, but if you realize that what Jesus avoids is is clear answers 
that show that give that give the lawyer a technical skill or the appropriate sort of simple clarity on how to apportion his love and his concern. Instead, Jesus takes what he would what the lawyer thought was a scum of the earth and couldn't even get himself to say the say that you know the person to identify the person in terms of his nationality. He takes the scum of the earth and and makes him an example of one who acts as a neighbor. And so if he had said everyone's your neighbor, he would have been answering the question in one sense, but he would have been submitting to the framework in which the lawyer was asking the question. And that's the error. The error is the demand to know where the line is, how far my love should go, where is the line, that demand in itself is a fundamentally flawed evaluative outlook. And Jesus will not answer a question within that framework. Instead, he answers a different question that forces you to reorient your evaluative outlook. Hopefully that's somewhat clear what I'm trying to say there. Jesus doesn't fiddle around in a in a flawed perception of the world. Jesus constantly overturns the tables of our evaluative outlooks because he's saying you're looking at it the wrong way. You're well, not seeing the one that's before you. I mean, when when the disciples, you know, ask him, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up, up to seven, which, you know, that was saying, I'm going way over what's expected. Like, I, this, this, that must be right. And then Jesus goes, no, 70 times seven or 77, depending on which gospel you're, you're looking at. Right. But, but the, the whole idea of what Jesus is saying is, no, no, you're not, you're not like, there's, there's not a limit. Like when you're asking about a limit, you're asking the wrong question. Yeah. And Jesus gave a number, but that number is not meant to be literal. In fact, even seven has a sense of being a complete amount. And so Jesus is saying, you know, and if you think about it, when you think about forgiving someone for something they've done to you, I mean, if you're married, you've had to forgive each other thousands of times. But generally speaking, when there's someone who's mistreated you, usually, you know, you fool me once, shame on me, shame on you. You fool me twice. You're not going to fool me twice. Sorry. <laughs> Political joke, I think. So, but but the idea is that, you know, if somebody mistreats you once, okay, I'll forgive you. If they mistreat you twice, you're like, I'm done with you. Yeah. So most of us don't even get, we're like seven times. Come on, disciples, you got to be better than that. But we don't normally go over two, right? Yeah. The best of us hit two, maybe three. But Jesus is like, you know, countless times. Uh, now that I know we can get into complexities of, you know, you don't, someone is not repentant and they're just abusing you. You don't just keep, you know, whatever, but that's, we're not, you're not stupid. You can use your prudence and your tech technical skills to deal with those issues. But the, but the thing is, Jesus is constantly pressing against this pressing and, and, uh, uh, using what might be considered something like he's what would you call it when you don't directly answer the question because the question itself is framed incorrectly? I call that teaching freshman intro to philosophy, but <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that was my 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 own experience in studying philosophy. The first class I ever, the first real philosophy class I ever took was an epistemology course, and I remember sitting there about through the first half of the semester, just kind of like drooling and looking and staring dumbly at the wall while I tried to figure out what in the world was going on. 
And then one day it just clicked. I was like, oh, 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 okay. I see. I see. And it's like the world just clicked into place. It, it, it shifted out of my normal way of looking at things. And that's what I normally tell students when I teach an intro to class. I said, intro to philosophy class. I'm like, you might, if this is your first introduction to philosophy, you're going to think we're talking way up here, but we're not actually. We're talking, you know, I, you just have to reorient your framework. And But it's hard to explain how that works. But if you look at a lot of Jesus' parables, I think that's what he's doing a lot of times. Yeah. Well, while we're being lighthearted when we talk about, you know, those intro classes. There's a lot of truth to to it, as, as Travis said, you know, it just kind of clicks. There's something about virtue that it kind of clicks. And then as you dig, as you go a little deeper, then it kind of clicks again. And it's, it's not that one day you wake up and you're like, Oh, I suddenly know exactly what virtue is and, and know how to be virtuous. But, but you, you realize the, the in certain moments that, something in the way you see the world has changed and you now recognize value in a place that you didn't recognize it before, or you, um, you are inclined to want to help someone where you wouldn't have wanted to help them before, or you're inclined to not get angry in a way that you would have gotten angry before that these, these shifts are happening. And it's not that you're necessarily making a decision to do something different in that moment as much as your natural response because of the way that you're, you're valuing things has shifted, which leads you to act in a more virtuous way. Now, how do you show that? I mean, I, I you know, if you're a parent, um, this is a question that might keep you up at night, uh, depending on how you how well behaved your children are. Um, you know, and, and, and as Travis mentioned at the end of the last time, you know, you want to know who, or how, can, can virtue be taught? We'll look at people we think are virtuous. Are their kids virtuous? Oh no, they're not at all. So it, apparently it can't be taught. And, you know, I think most parents, when they read that are like, I, I hope, I hope he's wrong. I hope I can help teach my kids virtue. Um, and I think that what we're what what is required doesn't fit under the way we think of education because it's not something that we can just give a nice list of things and if a nice list of rules a nice argument and if you if you just read the argument then you're going to see that oh this is what you should do or if you just get your kids to follow the rules oh they're going to be virtuous it 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 doesn't work that way yeah, let's so let's let's do it. Let's do a quick review so we can show what the issue is here because the the issue is, and I think we we all understand this. Like you and I are not talking about something crazy. What we understand is that training and virtue is not so much about teaching a bunch of information. What we want is our children and the people we're training to desire the right things, right? To be filled with a with a love of the good, not simply a love of of getting the reward for having done the thing that they don't want to do, but they do it because they know it's what's going to get them the reward. That doesn't make you virtuous. That makes your actions align with virtue, but your virtue is found in in your heart that then gives birth to the action, not just in the action itself. So 
what we're talking about. When, so when you talk about evaluative outlooks, we're talking about a fundamental way of seeing things so that instead of, so for example, when the Samaritan comes across the man, he has pity on him and shows him mercy. He doesn't do it because like, oh, I guess I got to show this guy mercy. He does it because he, in fact, has pity on him. Mm-hmm. And he, he cares. He cares. Now, the question, and this gets, gets, gets complicated, right? I mean, we talked in the last pod, or I mentioned in the last podcast, how C.S. Lewis said, if you can't, if you don't love someone and you know, you're commanded to love them, start acting as you, if you love them and then the love will follow. And so there is, this isn't, we're not necessarily saying that you just need to wait till you have these spontaneous desires. What we're talking about when we're talking about training in virtue, is we're talking about what does it mean to train someone so that their values begin to form so that they in fact care about the things they care about. They love the things they're supposed to love. They, uh, they, they abhor the things they're supposed to abhor, right? There's what does it mean to do that? Because we're trying to train desires. We're not simply trying to train kids how to get away with things. And by the way, that happens a lot. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed kids, whether your own or others, but there's a lot of kids who are very, very good at knowing how to play their parents so that the kid is always seen as the virtuous one. And yet, if you're watching them and they know their parents are not paying attention, they're horrible. And my kids aren't this way. My kids are just fantastic. And, so, and if, if my brothers are listening to this podcast, he's talking about you guys. <laughs> not your kid. You guys. Yeah. <laughs> No, I've seen kids like this who look very virtuous in front of the ki- in, in front of their parents, but when I see them when they're away from their parents, say, you know, and my kids may do the same thing, you know, because if they are, they're they're good at it. Because I haven't noticed, uh, my kids' sin or sins are are obvious. So, uh, <laughs> what does it mean to train someone's desires? And it seems to me that to, tra- I mean, wh- what would that what would that mean to train their desires? Well. Again, that's complicated because it depends on the person, but we often start by punishing people, by, by punishing children when they do something wrong, because we want them to, to connect in their minds the bad action and the punishment so it tastes bitter to them, right? So that the action mm-hmm. using taste or it, it, it's experienced as a bitter thing. And so the action itself begins to take on this flavor of nastiness because it's connected closely to this punishment. Does that train people? Does that is that a surefire way to train someone in virtue? No. No. I mean, if there was a way that you could be completely consistent and making sure that every time they did that action, that the negative taste or the negative experience was connected to it, then kind of. I mean, you would either you would either train them towards virtue or you would train them to uh, tolerate the negative experience more and more um, until it wasn't negative anymore. Yeah. And so there's something about, and that also works with, with positive actions being attached to rewards, right? Mm -hmm. So we want them to, to get a, a sweet taste with the positive action. And so we keep attaching rewards to the positive action and it does encourage children to do positive, good actions. It doesn't necessarily train them to love the action. 
but rather to love the reward. It doesn't train them to hate the bad action, but rather to hate the punishment. And so this could be part of the reason why grace is extended to us, because God wants us to transform, not to fear punishment. Right. And not to, and not to simply even just desire reward or to good, do good actions for the sake of reward. He gives us grace and now you can, now you're free to be virtuous. Now you're free to, to love the good, to love your neighbor and love God instead of acting like you love your neighbor so that you can make sure you make it to heaven. Curiously enough, that has caused many Christians to believe that the only virtue that matters, that really matters, is asking Jesus into your heart. And now you got the reward. And so, you know, you should probably try to be better, but get out of the way where you have to go get more people saved. Um which, I mean, there, there's positives and negatives to that, but there's a, and that, that's sort of a, a strange thing to say, but I think there's a, there's something to that where we emphasize, we focus primarily on that act, which makes sure you get the reward and helps you to avoid the punishment because we humans are, we don't like pain and we do like pleasure. And so we emphasize those sorts of things. The problem is the fear of punishment or the, the trying to avoid punishment and the trying to acquire reward does not develop virtue. It develops cleverness. Yeah. Right. Which happens with, with a lot of children and a lot of adults, right? We develop the capacity not to love the good, but to avoid punishment and develop, uh, the capacity to, to acquire rewards, to get people to think that we like them and so on and so forth. And, or, and, and someone who's really good at, avoiding punishment is probably going to look like a lot like what we think of as a virtuous person uh, because they, they know how to perform and where to perform and when to perform. And so what we see is going to be a picture of, they also know what the expectations are. Um, The interesting thing is the virtuous person might actually break out of that mold more often than we would expect because the virtuous person is going to recognize that what, what it means to be virtuous in that situation and do it in the right way, in the right amount at the right time for the right person. And so, I mean, if you have kids, you, you, you recognize that different punishments work differently for different kids. And, and, and so, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, the virtuous person, uh, you know, is all about the punishments, but the virtuous person recognizes that you demonstrate your virtue in different ways, in different situations to different people, because it's not going to, because virtue doesn't fit into a nice, easy, sayable box, a, a nice box that we can define and say, everything that goes in this box is virtuous. Everything outside of it is not virtuous. It's going to come down to your perceptions. To to riff on some Wittgenstein for a minute. In Wittgenstein's Tractatus, uh, which is a great book if you understand what it's saying, but from for most, the Tractatus nothing. Uh, yes, for m- most people, I think misread the Tractatus. But we can talk about that in another episode, but. He's, he's talking about, he's trying to, to 
clearly say all that can be said. And then he gets to, so he lays out all of these rules, but he talks about, you know, you can show meaning and say meaning and there's, there's a difference between the two. And if you can say it, you can't show it. If you can show it, it can't be fully said. And he, you know, he's kind of going through laying out these clear rules for what can be said, how you can say it all doing all these uh, logic truth tables and then he gets to the end and he starts talking about things like God and religion and ethics. And what he's saying there isn't, uh, doesn't fit into his nice logical structures that he's been using the entire book. And so it seems like he's, he's switched in that moment and he's saying, and, and with his words, he's showing us something. And he, he, He's showing us that ethics, that God, that religion, that these things don't fit into nice, clear structures. But there's meaning in them. And to act like there's meaning in them, or that, that there's no meaning in them, fails to see what's going on. Which, by the way, the logical positivists at the time... Did exactly that. Yeah, they said the word God has no meaning because meaning is shown by empirical, by the the way that you empirically measure something. And that's still, that's still, there's still echoes of that in contemporary atheism where it's like you need to demonstrate God's existence in a scientific measurable way. Otherwise, I mean, they would just say, God, there's no proof that God exists. But the logical positivist said, actually, there's no meaning in the term God. Right. Or in claims about God, you might say. And, and claims about ethics, too. They, the logical right. positivists, you know, reduce things like when we say that murder is wrong, what we're really saying is murder. Boo. Because <laughs> right and the words right and wrong don't mean anything if there's we're no trying empir- to. T- yeah, there's yeah. no empirical measurement of right and wrong. Right. It doesn't even make any sense. So Wittgenstein ends the Tractatus with a statement that I think is often misinterpreted. Well, I, I don't know if it's misinterpreted as people just don't know what to do with it. And so they they throw their hands up in the air and say, I, I read this book and it was worthless. But he, he says, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. What he's and and so you know he's he's basically said God and ethics are things that we can't say. But remember, just because something has meaning, or or remember that when something has meaning, it can either be said or it can be shown. And so what Wittgenstein is is doing with that final statement, where one cannot speak, there one must be silent. He's saying, when it comes to God, when it comes to ethics, if you're trying to fit them into this logical box, into these structures, you're going to fail because they don't fit. And so what we have to do if we're going to show the meaning is we have to show it, you know, um, we, we have to demonstrate the meaning. And sometimes we can use words to show it because for Wittgenstein saying something means fitting it into these clear logical structures. But we have to realize that when we're showing something we're we're admitting that our words cannot capture the fullness of it. And being that virtues about ethics, it makes sense that uh, virtue is going to be something that we can 
show. And, and Wittgenstein, you know, uses, you know, he, he says these things and what he's trying to do is he's kind of trying to point at, to say, look here, look this way. If you, if you can look this way and see what I see, you'll understand the meaning I'm trying to get at. And that's, and, and the, and when it comes to virtue, that is, that is how you teach virtue. But if you are dealing with someone who doesn't care to see what you're trying to see, you can stand and holler and point and wave your arms and do everything and do everything right and showing them what you're seeing that's driving virtue and it's not going to matter. One of the most interesting marks of the teacher of morality, of true virtue, is most people misunderstand them, right? So Jesus, I think, you know, I'm maybe going out on a limb here with you, but I think Jesus was one of the best teachers of virtue in the history of the universe. Mm -hmm. What happened when he taught virtue? Well, he got a small group of people who supported him and a large group of people who wanted him dead. Okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, a lot of people liked his, you know, per, you know, his multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, and they liked being healed by him, but they they didn't really follow what he was saying otherwise. And when the time came, you know, they kind of threw in their uh, their cheers with the crucify him crowd. Socrates is another one who I think was a fantastic teacher of virtue. And what was the result of him? Well, it was very much like Jesus, except a little less cruel. They killed him. He, he annoyed everybody. Uh, this, there's something, there's something different about these kinds of people. There's, there's actually research out that shows that curious people are the ones who learn best. And so the best actual teachers, not just, you know, teachers of information, but teaching in a meaningful way formative way like education was historically about as being about formation rather than information transfer teachers of formation are ones who can inspire curiosity in their students okay that's really interesting and the reason why there's there's this really brief dialogue called the clitophon it's some people are they're uncertain whether it was actually written by plato but the general consensus is that it is it's a real brief one. And in it, it's just this guy named Clitophon who's really mad at Socrates. And the reason he's mad is because Socrates stirred up all this desire for virtue in him, but never told him what it was. And so he's just going on this tirade to Socrates about stirring up all these questions, all this curiosity, all this desire to know and to pursue, but not giving the right answers. And so Clitophon actually says, I went to Thrasymachus. And again, I've mentioned Thrasymachus many times, but he's he's the sophistic, he's the angry sophist in book one of the Republic who says that justice is just the benefit of the stronger. Uh, why would he go to this sophist who's the direct opposite of Socrates? Well, because sophists can give answers. They give clear answers and they have clear marks of what it means to succeed. Like one of the markers of success is I can win arguments against anybody. And I can argue for any side. And so therefore, I will be successful. I will achieve my goals. I will have my best life now. I will accomplish I will accomplish what I aim for, right? I won't be living in a van down by the river. 
Instead, I will, I will have accomplished, I would have made lots of money and I'll look nice and I'll present myself well and I'll win, you know, whatever. Those are the markers of success, the markers of excellence. Socrates was ugly, poor, and was killed by the people he cared for. Jesus, there's nothing that, that would draw us to him, right? That's what it says. Uh, uh, and he was despised and considered cursed and then killed by the people that he loved. He, he didn't have a huge church. He didn't have a huge business, didn't have a lot of money, wasn't driving around in a, you know, a real expensive donkey. None of this, none of the markers of success, none of the markers of what we considered educational success are present in these teachers. It's something else. And yet they have had more impact than most of the people who are successful. They've had far more impact than the sophists ever did. And the, again, one of the markers is perhaps that we are left with the frustration. A lot of people are left with the frustration that Clitophon has, right? In fact, one of the one of the things that Socrates, one of the problems that Socrates had is a lot of people that he taught ended up becoming horrible people. Why? Because they missed it. And so, what what does it mean to teach? And this is the question I, I want to leave us with, and we'll, we're going to have to pick this up next week. And here's where I'm going to get myself into some trouble, maybe, uh, depending on who's listening. What would what would a sermon look like? Or to, and I remember I, I I got this a little bit in the last time. I'm trying to work to this. What would a sermon or Christian teaching look like that was actually showing rather than saying? Or, or maybe I'm sort of answering the question a little bit there. What would it look like? What would we expect in scripture, say a an epistle written from an apostle to someone else? What would it look like for them to do a showing of morality rather than simply a saying? What how would that how would that what would that look like? Because the way you're trained to do sermons are you analyze the text and you give application points because what do people want? This is what I was told over and over again. What do people want? They want clear application. They just want to know what they're supposed to do. And alliteration. Alliteration, yeah. I mean, I don't have a problem with an alliteration, you know, but but it's just, it was always like, they just, they just, they don't want you to fiddle around with it. Like, just tell them what they're supposed to do. Well, I'm like, I mean, it's, I always felt weird. It's obvious what you're supposed to do. Like, come and worship Jesus and don't steal things and don't kill people and, you know, don't commit adultery. And I mean- what do you mean tell you what to do? You know what you're not supposed to do. Stop doing that. Everybody knows they're not supposed to do it. The issue is not that people don't know what they're supposed to do. It's that people don't want to do it. And people don't find the sinful ugly. They find the sinful beautiful. And they find the good dull, drab, or ugly. That's the problem. There are evaluative outlooks are upside down. And we keep trying to take Christian principles. And we think if we just use alliteration, and we make some funny jokes, we can convince people who are looking at the world, who, when we have the wrong evaluative outlook, so we can convince ourselves to do the right thing by teaching morality as a techne, as a technical skill, or as prudence, when our evaluative outlooks are all messed up. Because you can tell the person, if I look at, and I've seen this happen numerous times, People who absolutely, there's a pastor I know recent, fairly recently who was up preaching for years 
And I'm sure he 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 would look at anybody who's committing adultery and say that's ugly when they commit. But he himself ended up leaving his wife and his kids to run off with one of his prisoners. Why? Because when you're in that situation, it doesn't look ugly. It only looks ugly from the outside. Only other people's sins look ugly. Yours don't. Yours are justifiable. You have a justifiable grievance. You have a justifiable desire. This is your soulmate. This is the be- this is the beautiful thing. You deserve that thing. That's what's going on in your head. And you could give the- you can give all the technical skill you want. It doesn't matter. You can interpret scripture. You can know the Greek and the Hebrew. You might even read your Bible and pray every day. But it doesn't make any difference if your value of outlook is all messed up. Even if someone rose from the dead, you wouldn't be convinced. To quote one of my favorite stories, the rich man of Lazarus, that's what Abraham says to the uh, to the rich man. Because you're, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way you're perceiving the world. And if anything, sometimes those, those quote-unquote good things can actually be tools to help us persist in our bad evaluative outlook. That is, and we've seen people and experienced in ourselves probably that happening. Um, but we need to stop for now, and uh, we'll, we'll pick up on that next time uh, when we get to tell everyone how they're supposed to preach and teach because, you know, we know better than y'all. I, I hope y'all recognize how I'm joking. I'm jokingly arrogant, and I'm sort of telling you to kind of take everything we say with a grain of salt and reflect on it. We're here to stir up your curiosity, not necessarily tell you the answers. But on that note, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.